Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello, 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 and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the movie review podcast where good taste and bad taste punch each other. Ah, my face. Yes, right in Whitney's face. (laughs) My name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. I write for The Rap. I write for The Film Verdict. I write for Slash Film. Everybody calls me Bibbs. With that inflection as well. Hey, Bibbs! Uh, hey, Bibbs! What's going on? It's hey! Not, it almost sounded like uh, like Bob Dylan. Yeah, a little bit. bit. Bibbs Dylan. Hey! Uh, my name is... It, how does it Bibbs? <laughs> my, name, uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I'm not Bob Dylan. Uh, I have I have fewer Pulitzer Prizes. Uh, Pulitzer? Pulitzer, Nobel, he won some He won some award. fancy thing. Some thing. fancy thing for blowing into a harmonica. Lewin in the Davis 60s. deserved it. <laughs> My name is Whitney Seibold. I, I only write for uh, Slash Film. Uh, at the moment. I, I don't have the, a, a huge uh, list of outlets I'm contributing to, but I contribute a lot to Slash Film. Yes, you sure do. You write many a thing. I do indeed. Yeah. Sometimes. Uh, no, all the time, actually. My bad. Yeah, all, all sorry. The time. Yeah, I I'm, really... I'm on the Star Trek beat a lot. I wrote yeah. two articles about Freddy versus Jason. She's about to turn 20. God, I'm old. Time just keeps on slipping, slipping into the future. Yeah. Shut what? up. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you bring that into this? I want to fly like an eagle. No. Okay, listen. It's critically acclaimed. We're reviewing new movies. Mm. Here's what we're reviewing this week. We're reviewing The Last Voyage of the Demeter. We're reviewing Heart of Stone, the new Netflix film with Gal Gadot. Uh, we're reviewing a new sci-fi film with Judy Greer, Aporia. We're reviewing uh, the uh, queer rom-com Red, White, and Royal Blue. And we're reviewing the new Shudder original, a horror film called The Communion Girl. Yeah, although uh, it's, it's another one that they've uh, imported. Mm. It's, it's a Spanish film. Yes. So we'll, we'll talk about it. Indeed we will. Uh, the big release that we're talking about this week uh, is, uh, well, not so big at the box office, but by God, it was in a lot of theaters. Uh, the Last Voyage of the Demeter, uh, which is directed by Andre Overdahl, who's directed a lot of really good movies. He directed Troll Hunter. He, like directed, Hunter. he directed The Autopsy of Jane Doe, which is very scary. Didn't see that, although I did see his scary stories to tell in the dark, and I was fond of that one. It's pretty good. A, a little unwieldy, perhaps. I think maybe it could have... Mm-hmm. It, it tried to do more than it needed to, but it, it gets some really scary bits in there. Yeah, it understood. It uh, understood the appeal of the original books. Yes, which is the and, which is the art. And took a, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's you got to capture the art. Stephen Gamble's artwork. Uh, what with uh, certain animated films like you know mm. Spider Man and Ninja Turtles getting really wild with their designs, just to get Stephen Gamble oh, animated and do a scary stories Can film you that imagine way. Imagine a scary stories film, or even just a short. Yeah. That was just animated to try to make Stephen Gamble's artwork look alive. Yeah. Oh, that would have been 
Dunning. So nobody cares about Schwartz, whoever the author was. Yeah, Alvin Schwartz, I think. I thought it was Stephen Schwartz. It might no, have been Steve. Alvin Schwartz. What? It's a it's a something Vin Schwartz. Yeah. Um. In any case, I, I mostly like Andre Overdahl's work. I think Troll Hunter is one of the better found footage horror movies mm. uh, we've ever had. Um, it's a really cool uh, horror film about uh, like student filmmakers who are trying to do a documentary about like mysterious animal deaths, and what they discover is that trolls, like really giant trolls from like fairy tales, are real. And there's and the a, Norwegian government is, has is, hired an agent to hunt them down. Well, basically, he's just there to maintain the population, but they're starting to like act out and get more violent. But I love it because it doesn't treat it like, oh, it's this sinister cabal of men in black suits with unlimited budgets. No, they just hired one guy. <laughs> it's like one guy, and he's got to do it all, and he kind of hates his job a little bit, and he just lets them follow him around because he doesn't give a shit anymore about the privacy. He just is just bored, yeah. and it's really funny. But it's also like the the troll stuff is like kind of epic. Like there's some really giant kind of set they're, pieces they're in like, it. Yeah, but, nine to thirty feet tall. The yeah, trolls it's really they... cool looking. Yeah, um, I like that one a lot. And again, the Autopsy of Jane Doe, which stars um, uh, Emil Hirsch and Brian Cox as father-son uh, morticians and they're also because it's in a small town they also double as uh the uh, forensic team whenever there's like a mysterious dead body and so they get a mysterious dead body and as they start like trying to figure out like how it died they, the body is full of mysteries and i won't ruin it for you after that but it's a lot of creepy stuff and it's really cool why is there a raccoon in here <laughs> Um, so I like his work a lot. Uh, the Last Voyage of Demeter is uh, is a film that takes place entirely within one chapter of Bram Stoker's Dracula. You may recall that Bram Stoker's Dracula, the uh, title character, uh, started off in Transylvania and then traveled to England uh, a little later in the book. And the boat journey that he took uh, ended with the ship being derelict and no one being alive on it. And uh, they, they, they still shipped the crates to Carfax Abbey, so it all worked out for uh, Jack, but everyone on the a, ship died. And the, that scene was also in uh, Nosferatu. Mm -hmm. It was also in... Uh, well, the, uh, the aftermath the, was, anyway. Todd, yeah. uh, Todd Browning's Dracula as well. Mm -hmm. um, we in uh, Bram Stoker's novel is told in letters. It's an epistolary novel. Yeah. So we get everything after the fact. Mm. And the only... Uh, bits we get from uh, the the Demeter. I always pronounce it Demeter, which I think is the American pronunciation. Yeah, but it's, uh, I believe the correct one is actually Demeter. Uh, if if you're British or Greek or right, D Demeter. Okay. Uh, we didn't get a lot from sort of the ship's captain, but there were a few like log entries, like the the people are getting sick or somebody's died on on board, and what's really happening is Count Dracula is on board in a coffin, yeah. traveling mm -hmm. with coffins of earth. Uh, in Nosferatu, they explain in an intertitle that vampires have to travel with the earth they're buried in. Yeah. Uh, but it's not really explained too explicitly in this film or many of the other Dracula movies. It's just sort of like an accoutrement of his travel. So much of like Dracula stuff and vampire mythology, people just assume you know. They yeah. don't even bother explaining. They wouldn't have like well, there's not there are all these shots in this movie of like the 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 crates getting cracked open or ex or like mm. just like a little crack and then like a little earth falls out and we're supposed to go oh it's Dracula dirt yeah. and at no point in the movie does anyone say yeah they got to do that well in, in this one uh, it's actually explained a little bit more explicitly that Dracula had like a, a person 
trapped in in the dirt. Yeah, like that, he, he brought a snack he, that he had been milking, like yeah. milking blood out of. It's, all it's this like time. it's like you go on an airplane and it's like oh they charge for food now and you're mm. like I'm just gonna ziplock some Cheetos uh, some from Z home. Bars, yeah. yeah, exactly. And so that was he brought a snack and that mm. becomes a major plot point. Uh, this movie has been in development hell for decades. And I think that's really interesting uh, because, which is a little odd because it's it's a Dracula story. To yeah. say it's we've been calling it uh, Dracula boat. Yeah, like, or Dracula on a boat. A lot of yeah, one or the just, other. Yeah, yeah, just just Dracula. They could have called it Dracula boat, and people yeah. would have gone. Like like a lot of filmmakers have been attached to this over the years. I remember hearing about this like in like the nineties. Uh, let's see, uh, Robert Schwenke was going to direct this for a while. Schwenke. Schwenke, sorry. Yeah. Uh, Marcus Nispel, who did, uh, mm. you know, the, the remake of Texas Chainsaw. Mm. Uh, he was attached to this for a while. Uh, so a lot of the, the, yeah. the, the semi-stylish Hollywood mm. types. Uh, David Slade, who had done Hard Candy, was attached to this. Neil Marshall was attached to this. Um, I had heard a rumor for a while that, like, maybe someone as big as Ridley Scott was interested, but I don't know if that was just a... Uh, mm. a a rumor or what? Okay, all all the filmmakers you're you're listing mm. are are kind of a in my mind kind of in the same circle as Andre Overdahl. Yeah, like, like, they're, like they're all equally capable of doing this kind of material. They make genre but, films, yeah. But none of them would like stand out any more extraordinarily than any of the others. I think a they're, lot, all, they're all just capable. A lot of the filmmakers that we're talking about, yeah, they're capable. They can make a movie that works if the material is good. If the cast comes together, they might make a really good movie. But they're not guaranteed to make a really good mm-hmm. movie. And most of the directors that we mentioned have made their fair share of stinkers. Um, I had been hearing about this movie for so long that I assumed that the script must be great. Mm. I assumed that, okay, that's it's, it's, a, it's a smart idea for a movie. You know, it's, it's already in the canon. Mm. It's creepy and no one gets off the ship alive. They're all eaten by Dracula. They're stuck at sea. Great premise. I, I, Bram Stoker kind of left it a little vague for a reason. He could have dedicated a lot of his book mm. to this if he wanted to. He left it a little vague. Most movies kind of gloss over it because it's something that's like, it's a bit of an aside. We kind of just want to get Dracula to England. Well, it's already been established. He, yeah. he wants to go to Carfax Abbey. He yeah. already has a relationship with Jonathan Harker. Mm-hmm. Uh, We've got all these which, characters yeah. who aren't on that boat. Mm. So we kind of just want to move past it. I assumed that the this movie would put in some work to make us really care about all the people on this boat because they may be anecdotes in Bram Stoker's novel, but this is their movie. Mm. They should have the it should be it should feel as important as Dracula in terms of this is their whole life story. This is where their life ends yeah. and they get killed by one of the greatest monsters ever conceived of in literature. And I was very disappointed to discover that this is a very perfunctory film. Uh, well, it's it's the alien model. They're in, they're on a ship, and there's a creature on board, and it's stalking and killing them. And they have to figure yeah. out what the mystery of the monster is and find out a way to kill it. Um, I think the script is trying to do more than Andre Overdahl is letting it do. How do you feel? Uh, How do you figure? Like, the script is actually pretty good about introducing each of the characters, mm-hmm. giving them a little bit of a moment to shine, giving them, like, a, a, a scene or two where they get to explain who they are when we go mm-hmm. on. They're not just grist for the mill. I mean, they are, but uh, they're not being is they, treated... They get, like, one trait. Uh, they're not being treated that way. Mm. And 
I feel like in the hands of a more capable director, they would have had, like, maybe the camera would have lingered, the editing would have been better, they would have shot them in more than just, like, close-ups or two-shots, which is something that filmmakers do even when they're not filming with COVID lockdowns. They're just trying to keep the camera really tight and edit really quickly, and I don't know why we can't just have an establishing shot of the room so i know where every <laughs> every person is and they're I all wonder, just sort of talking over each other has a the bit, art make it of, a little bit more has the natural. art has the art of getting like one master shot with the entire cast mm. been lost do we just not do that anymore it and we just like plan it it feels like it's really rare and yeah. without that little master shot yeah it it feels like everybody's cramped together and i guess it's a cramped yeah. space but it doesn't feel claustrophobic you can, you can it just master, feels well think of something like master and commander yeah i mean that maybe a little unfair that's one of the greatest boat movies ever but but it was it came out Peter, like 20 years ago Peter i feel Weir like was really masterful about yeah. pushing the camera through these cramped spaces where everybody's together and they're all talking and mm-hmm. chattering give me master and commander with dracula in it <laughs> sold I'm, that's the pitch I, I that's go. the I whole go. pitch right there yeah. Uh, so I feel like the script is doing its due diligence, mm-hmm. and Andre Ovidal is, like, through little editing problems, and the sound is a big issue in this film as well, oh, yeah. How do you figure? Um, is kind of doing those characters a disservice. Uh, it feels like an Italian import from, like, the 70s, mm-hmm. where all of the char- all the characters' dialogue is, like, weirdly hefty and sweetened in a way where it feels really artificial like it was mm. dubbed over after the fact oh i get it like there's big wide open spaces where they're outdoors at sea and it, they're like whispering really quietly and it's like thundering on the soundtrack and it's like you're in a studio <laughs> the, the, this doesn't feel like you're on a boat and you're scared and you're trapped like there's nothing organic or scary about this because it feels so artificial and that's a lot of it this movie yeah. feels weirdly because it feels like they had some real sets here and the sets are kind of cool looking but but they're not filmed that's the point. with reality. They're not filmed with... That's my point. They're not filmed with reality. There's a certain... Uh, uh, just sort of... Again, perfunctory is the word I want to use here. I feel like this is basically just a slasher movie on a boat. And they're not treating it as... Welcome to another time. Yeah. Here's this incredible old creepy boat. And there's a creepy monster on it. You're stuck on this boat. Also, it's you it's, know? it's called The Last Voyage of the Demeter. I want to see the Demeter. I, yeah. There's it, like it should one, be a char- there's this one is a shot cliche. of the it should be a character. It, it should be a character, though. Like, there's one shot of, like, the masthead. Yeah. It's like, no, show the whole, like, a big glory shot of the ship. There's a shot of the masthead. And the mast, you know, the masthead's the front of the boat. It often has, like, a, a person carved into it or mm-hmm. an animal or something. And it's like a person carved into the front of the boat, and they're carrying a sickle. They're carrying a real sickle, by the way. Mm. I assumed that was set up for so, later. Someone's going to yeah, pluck it up and then use it. No! But, <laughs> that's weird. Why did you yeah. go to all that trouble <laughs> to add this element that's never going to pay off? But uh, the, the, Chekhov would be so mad. <laughs> but I, I appreciate that they tried to give you know each character at least one trait. Like, they, they mm. weren't just generic man uh there was uh the captain who was also the narrator who was a little bit of a realist didn't believe in like the supernatural just wanted to get the job done played by liam uh, cunningham good actor yeah. uh there was the first mate who was played by uh dustin Dalm. how do you pronounce david dustmalkian david dustmalkian david david dustmalkian yes um, i believe that's correct who's having a moment He's been he's a lot, lot of movies, of his, yeah, just was like in, one, one right after the other. His his one scene in The Boogeyman is better than the rest of the whole movie. Yeah, he's pretty so much, good. Yeah. He's got a monologue and he 
kills it. He's <laughs> he, fantastic. He plays like nervous creeps very well. Um, yeah. And yeah, this one he's playing sort of a, a dour first mate, but he knows he's better than this job and he can be a captain someday. And later in the movie, the captain says you'd make a good captain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the, the kind of the main character is uh, a doctor. Mm-hmm. Not Stephen Maturin. <laughs> Played by Corey Hawkins. Corey Hawkins, who's an actor yeah. I like. I like Corey Hawkins a lot. I think he, I think casting him was good, was smart. He yeah, brings he, was, he, he brings a lot the, to it. He was in Straight Outta Compton. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a small role in Black Klansman. Yeah. But yeah. a memorable role. I had a great speech in it. Uh, uh, a lot and of great and he was in a Quibi. He's in a Quibi called mm. Survive. Well, then that, yeah. if that isn't the mark of quality, I don't know what is. Yeah, uh, he plays uh, one of the first... Um, I think he said he went to Cambridge... He, it's like one of yeah, the first black men to uh, to get a doctorate yeah. in Cambridge in medicine, but and, then no one wanted to hire a black guy. Yeah, so he's sort of trapped. He's overeducated and, uh, and unable to get and, a job anywhere. And the opening scenes of the movie is gathering up the crew, and and again, fine structurally, just gather yeah. up the crew. We get to meet all these colorful characters. Uh, yeah, they sort of pick them out of the crowd off, off of the piers and say, you know, we're, we're going on this voyage, we need people, we need workers. Yeah. And there's some colorful workers they get on. And, yeah. uh, and there's a young boy uh, as well, uh, Toby. Yes. Oh, poor Toby. They yell Toby so goddamn much. <laughs> You'll hear movie. that. Uh, and the uh, and the woman who plays Dracula Snack is actually I was I was like I was trying to remember Dracula Snack I was trying to remember where I knew her from because I knew her from something and I knew I really liked her in something but I hadn't seen her in a lot since it's Aisling Franciosi from The Nightingale yeah which is one of the most intense movies of the last oh, several God, years yeah. uh, and she's amazing in that movie yeah. and she brings what she can here but fortunately again I I appreciate that they tried. To give all the characters something, some business, some character. But it felt like so very few of them got yeah. anything to talk about. And I kept thinking about, if this movie were like made in a different time. You mentioned 1970s mm. as like a sort of an Italian kind of, uh, yeah. uh, maybe import. Uh, the, the, the two versions of this movie I kept thinking about would be a lot better. One, Hammer Horror. Like if this was made in the seventies and Peter Cushing was the the it would have been sexy pirate movie, it would have been Dracula, great. Yeah. It would have been atmospheric, but there would have been a lot more, uh, a lot more sleaze and a lot more character. And the other thing I kept thinking of is if Mick Garris directed this as a TV movie in nineteen ninety five, I think it also would have been better because. Mm. When you remove the need for this to be a spectacle, you need to have CG Dracula flying around mm. and shit. You, you, you end up just having to make the characters yeah. push the movie forward. And I think so much of this movie is... it's it, the, the plot is constructed reasonably well. But so much of the movie is just trying to get to the next plot point or the next kill. That I'm like, we are stuck on a boat with a monster we don't understand. Nobody knows the Dracula rules. Yeah. So this is completely mind-bending to all of them. And I feel like we get little moments where they're like, you know, we get to see how they sort of implode. But yeah. that's one of the things that Alien did so well. The characters actually interacted well, they, and they not expanded only did, yeah. upon each other, you know? Not only did they interact, but there was a lot of exploration as to what the monster was. Yeah. Like there's a heck of a lot of that movie is devoted to dissecting the creature, explaining mm-hmm. what it is, how its mechanics work, you know, this looking at it for a really long time. Yeah. Um, yeah, they used a lot of CGI. First of all, Dracula only comes out at night, and this has terrible nighttime photography where everything's in the rain and you can't see anything. Yeah. Uh, and 
they also used CGI because this is a, a Nosferatu Dracula. Yeah. This is not a Bela Lugosi Dracula. He never gets this. He doesn't have a sexy mode. No, no, no. Yeah. He doesn't ever look human. Always has like gigantic fangs on the outside of his mouth and big bat ears and wings. Um, how that guy's going to wander around the streets of London, who knows? I'm, but, I'm uh, imagining him like going to the opera and meeting Mina Hawk and like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, don't mind me. Enjoy the opera. <laughs> I never drink <laughs> wine. Like yeah, I, I, this is supposed to fit tidily into. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was hoping this might be like when it started. I was hoping this might be like an in the heart of the sea kind of thing, where it's like, no, no, no. Dracula is based on this real story that happened to the Demeter, <laughs> and that would have given you yeah. the freedom uh-huh. to step out of the novel a little bit and you know surprise us. Yeah, and instead it, they try to make it seem like it fits tidily into it, and then by the end it's like, but it. Well, also, it, it, it doesn't because it plays by, like, modern Dracula vampire rules, yeah. movie vampire rules, where, it, like, a vampire bites you once, drinks your blood a little bit, yeah. and you become a vampire. Yeah, it's in like this, an infectious disease. In, in this one, they become more like zombies. Uh, like, mm. their eyes go white, and they kind of are a little bit mindless. Uh, yeah. they, they don't turn... There's no shots of the fangs growing, which no. I actually kind of appreciate, at least, you know... Dracula's got more, like, kind of shark teeth in this yeah. one anyway, yeah. Uh, Dracula is played by a Spanish actor named Javier Botet, mm. who was Mama. Oh, uh, cool. He was uh, one of the evil gods in The Mummy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the Slender Man. In the bad movie from 2018. In, yeah, That's a he, terrible film. He was, it's not uh, his fault. But... He was Key Face in Insidious The Last Key. Oh, uh, okay. If, if so he does been, a lot of monster if stuff. If there's been a long, lanky monster, it was either Doug Jones or this guy. Fair enough. Uh, in fact, Doug Jones and Javier Bartet was in, were in an episode of Star Trek together. Because ah. Doug Jones plays uh, one of the main characters on Star Trek Discovery. Yeah. And he played like this evil-looking tar alien. Uh, you don't see his face at all. Wait, is, is it any relation to uh, the tar alien who killed Tashi Yar? No, it's a different species. Bummer. Played a species called the Ba'ul. Okay. That, that ate... Doug Jones species. And then they called Vincent Tanafra and it's like, he got a Ba'ul uh, problem. A Ba'ul problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so he, yeah. And, uh, he has um, a joint condition of some kind. Like, uh, uh, Hold on, it's the, actually, I think it's hyperlaxity? Yeah, like his, yeah. it's, and people who have it, like, their joints elongate, so they tend to be, like, really long, uh, just bodily long and thin. It's, uh, yeah. it just changes the way their body's shaped. It doesn't really affect yeah. their health unless it gets to your eyes or your heart, and you can just sort of take some uh, medicines or therapies. Um, but yeah, as such, he's always been, like, really flexible, and he always, like, I, I read an interview with him. He said he liked to freak out his friends with like his long fingers and his contortionism. Yeah. So he's just kind of parlayed that into a career yeah. playing like monsters. Yeah. He is such a cool looking guy. Mm-hmm. You don't need to cover him with no. makeup and special effects. Like you can put a monster hat on him. Yeah, if you fine. Want. But like, yeah, I feel like. Uh, or, or monster skin, but just f- film him doing yeah. his shtick, something he's done a lot in movies, and just have that be Dracula. That's kind of my point. You don't I, need to. Cover it all up because now we can't see there, him there's, either. There's so much effort to make this movie feel big mm-hmm. that it doesn't appreciate that this movie is small. It, it's a small it's a, movie. It's it takes place on tra- a single location. It's people trapped yeah. on a boat, dying, and there's a monster in the shadows. This should have been very, very intimate. And th- it feels like they're trying to make it huge. This guy has like a big action finale mm-hmm. that... I appreciate you need to escalate things towards the end, and there mm. there is kind of a justification for why this is our, we have to make a last stand because Dracula's just going to kill us all. There's a reason for that, and it makes sense. 
but it feels like they're just trying to make it so epic that the the fundamental premise of this as intimate and frightening gets lost way too much. There's a couple of moments that I respect. There's a couple mm. of characters who I thought would wouldn't die like that, and I respect the movie for going there. Uh-huh. Well. I- I mean, they're all doomed. They're, they're all, all doomed, die, but, but like yeah. that. Yeah. All right. Like, but yeah, that's the other thing about a movie like this is that, you know, when you decide to tell a story about, and then all these characters died, and this is the story you never told. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always in the back of your head, like, okay, but how did one get away? I remember. <laughs> I, I remember. I interviewed one of the writers. It turns, of, turns out they were all one day away from retirement. I, there, there, there's a speech that the captain has. Like this is my last voyage before retirement. And I'm like, oh, he's dead. Oh wait, they're all dead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I interviewed the, uh, the one of the writers of Rogue One once, okay. uh, and that's another one that takes place in this kind of pocket in the original continuity where someone got the Death Star plans, they stole them, and gave them to Princess Leia. Mm-hmm. We never saw that. Why? Because it wasn't a about that it's a MacGuffin but someone had the idea it's not altogether unclever let's tell the story of how that happened okay Mm. uh problem is if any of those characters who did that were genuinely important and lived we would have seen them there would be tales told so we know from the beginning of the film they're all gonna die and I asked him I was like was there ever a draft where you tried to find an out and they were like, it was talked about. And then we were like, nah. <laughs> like, just just let it be a tragedy. Mm-hmm. Let it be, like... Because even, like, the Dirty Dozen and, like, all of these, like, you know, big war things, they don't all die. You want to have, like... They, the audience feels a little satisfied if, like, at least a couple people. Like, they even Shakespeare didn't kill Horatio. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like there's a couple of people who make it out, right? And so you keep asking yourself, how is this going to cheat the original material and I'm not going to tell you whether or not it does what I can say is that the ending of the movie I think was supposed to be satisfying and instead kind of annoyed me because I think they chose the wrong time to screw with canon Uh, I was like if you're going to screw with canon screw with it it early Mm -hmm. so that we can all have some fun here instead of just like yeah we might have flipped the script on Dracula and I'm like now? (laughs) you're going to do that now? (laughs) Anyway, I was. A, it, it's not. It's not horrible. It's very functional, but it's yeah, such like, a wasted opportunity. Well, like I said, the, the story's pretty straightforward. I think the script is doing its job, but the direction mm. is getting in its way. Yeah. Uh, and also, yeah, it was made for like what forty-five, fifty million dollars. Yeah. You make this for five million dollars. This this, this, yeah, this should be. You get a boat and mm. one big actor. Yeah. That should be where the where the money is going here. This cost uh, this is forty five million, which yeah, admittedly, admittedly for like a studio film, it's pretty low these pretty days. Pretty low for a studio yeah. film, but for a horror movie, that's really high. Yeah, and I think this is one of those movies where, man, if we could have brought this in for five, mm. we'd probably be sitting pretty pretty right now. Yeah, but no, no, we we we, and also I, the other thing I have to wonder though is because it's been in development hell for so long, and this is just inside baseball. It's not really important to the film, but. When a movie is in development hell, usually all of the money spent developing it that entire time gets wrapped up into the budget. Oh, okay. Which so is why, is like, like, several productions worth of budget. Th- which is why, like, Superman Returns had this, like, absurd budget when you look at it. Mm. And you're like, that is not all on screen. Where did that go? That's from J.J. Abrams' film getting, you know, cast and almost no, going in front of the camera. That's from Superman Lives. It's like all of these movies got just kind of thrown into that budget. Okay. So that probably some of that is the last 20 years of development hell, but 
seriously, that's pretty expensive for a horror movie. Yeah. Anyway, uh, what do you want to talk about next? This is just it's Dracula. It doesn't need to be in development hell. Just do Dracula. Do Dra- also, it's public domain. It's, uh, yeah, it's also the second Dracula movie that Universal's put out this year because they also yeah. did Renfield, which I st- I still haven't seen. I heard it was cute. It's cute. Yeah, I like I like Nicholas Holt. Nick, Nick Cage is Dracula. I'm sold. That's fun. Uh, the, it's worth seeing for them. I mean, it's yeah. it's not super extraordinary otherwise, but yeah, they're both fun. Fair enough. Uh, what do you want to talk about next? Uh, tell me about Heart of Stone. Okay, because uh, I I can't say the title without thinking of like Neil Young singing yeah. it. I want a thingy of a heart of stone. I, I know it's, I know it's Heart of Gold. Okay. Just just like meow a little bit. Mm. Like, like, you know, like the yowling, like the caterwauling you hear no, from he, your cat out in the alleyway? Yes. Just three quarters of the way there and you'll get Neil Young. Anyway, Heart of Stone. <laughs> Heart of Stone <laughs> is uh, a film. About Rachel Stone. <laughs> about a woman named Rachel Stone, played by Gal Gadot. <laughs> she is a spy and she is working for an artificial intelligence called... The heart. Shouldn't it be Stone of Heart then? It should be Stone of Heart. <laughs> also, I might add, everything you just heard see, sounds like the fake movie you see in another movie. Yeah, that, that's a Simpsons parody. Yeah, like that sounds like, seriously, that sounds like a joke, right? Like that's not a real uh, film. So she's a spy mm-hmm. working for an AI. Is, is the AI a loom? <laughs> no, we're not. We're not that interesting. Um, it's a reference to the movie Wanted. It is a reference to the movie Wanted. Hardestone is uh, the latest streaming spy thriller, and boy are they of a piece. When you can, when you take Heart of Stone, The Gray Man, uh, 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 Ghosted, which was you know had more rom com vibes, but was still very much that kind of spy film, uh, and then Ghosted, and then to a mostly red notice it's technically not a spy film but it's got spy film vibes these are all like globe trotting adventure movies uh that look way too expensive for how little is actually happening they're all about plot the character stuff usually is flat or annoying uh and hopefully the action is good because that's all you got um what i will say is that red notice fucking sucked yes uh, Ghosted fucking sucked. <laughs> okay. Gray Man fucking sucked. Oh yeah, these are all terrible movies. Heart of Stone is watchably mediocre. Uh, so uh, that's that's small that's, miracles. I guess it's it's an improvement. Is my point. <laughs> okay. Like we're getting slightly better, and I will appreciate that while still admitting the movie isn't very good. Um, Gal Gadot plays a woman who works for a secret, uh, a super secret, secret agency called the Charter. And all of these, like, actual, like, secret agencies that we know about, like CIA and MI6, mm-hmm. they tell urban legends about the Charter. The Charter is so like... it's IMF. Basically. Anyway, right. they, they, the whole... <laughs> from, from Mission Impossible. If the next Mission Impossible ends with, like, the AI... Like, you know, like, the one of the plot points in Dead Reckoning is that you can, like... If you're, like, you've done something wrong, you're a criminal or whatever, mm-hmm. you can say, I choose to join the IMF, and they'll, like, expunge your record, but you gotta work for them. Yeah. Uh... If the next, if Dead Reckoning Part Two ends with the AI joining IMF, oh, that'd be great. F- a, that's a fun twist. B, that's a prequel to Heart of Stone because the idea is uh, a bunch of spies who were tired of working within the system that was just kept perpetuating the status quo uh, mm. decided to start a super secret spy agency of them of their own, and never mind how they got it or who invented it, but they have the world's most sophisticated AI 
telling them what to do. It is very much the loom of fate. Uh, and in order to accomplish all their goals, well, they what, have... What does is, what is the AI do? Well, the AI basically says... Um, there, there are macro things like, okay, this, this area is a hotbed of terrorist activity or we suspect that there will be a terrorist attack in this place right. on this day. So it's so like we, anti-terrorism. And, they, and they'll say, like, it's not 100% certainty, but it's 83% certain, so we should go there. You know? right. Which, again, this is all bullshit. <laughs> it's all very much like well, the kind I'm, I'm, of... I'm okay with bullshit I'm, so long as it's presented in a fun way. I, I, that's my... But here's... The, but what happens... It, let, let me let me just walk you through the opening scene. Uh, so the opening scene, Gal Gadot is actually a member of MI6 and she's the tech person and she's got all of these other like cool spy people around her. Jamie Dornan plays like the James Bondian type. Okay. Um, and they're in the middle of a mission and they're trying to get this arms dealer and the mission goes haywire goes real bad <coughs> bless you my goodness got it <coughs> bless you again one more uh no i think i'm done okay the mission the mission goes haywire everyone starts like you know there, there's like a chase down this like mountain ski resort and just as everyone's about to like chase him down uh gal gadot says oh no uh i hurt my knee you guys go on without me and they're like okay here we go the nerd can't handle the action sequence we'll just drive away and do our cool action sequence and then she puts like a cool thing in her ear and she's just like tell me what to do and it's like the ai says there's like a there's like a base jumping outfit like in a shed near you go get the base jumping outfit and fly down the and it becomes this whole thing about like just guiding her through this crazy action sequence so you can beat them down the mountain kind of stuff who plays the voice of the ai no one Oh, is it is it just an AI like generated voice? It, no, there's no AI generated voice. The AI is actually interpreted by, and I actually really like this actor a lot, uh, Matthias Schweikhofer, okay. uh, who you may recall from Army of the Dead. Oh, okay, yeah, and yeah. Uh, and the oh, was he it, the guy that wrote Army of the Dead? No, he uh, he he worked on the sec the the follow up. Hold on, what was it? What was it called? Army of Thieves. Army of Thieves. He did Army of Thieves. Uh, Which is a vastly superior movie. That's a corker. (laughs) That's a really good... That's kind of a red notice. That's like the best red notice that we've had. It's actually like... It's actually like... The the characters are really fun. The set pieces are really clever. There's some good switcheroos. It's ridiculous, but in a fun way. Like, uh, they, they introduce... They have to gather together all these heisters, mm-hmm. like these master safe crackers, by having a safe cracking competition. That's so fun! Like they got a bunch of vaults together, That's and they all have so to crack fun. these giant vaults. No, yeah. he's a, and he's a fun. He's like he's like a dweeb, but he's like really excited to be mm-hmm. part of like a heist team, and he's so much fun. And that's he doesn't have a lot to do here, but he's so likable. He really elevates it. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad he's in the movie. Mm. Um, so he's the one who like interprets what the AI is saying and tells her okay. what to do. So he's like her handler. Uh, Sophie Okonedo, wonderful actor. Oh, I love Sophie uh, She plays the M of right. the group. Uh, so, you know, mostly exposition. She but could so play, She could just play M. She'd be yeah. a great M, by the way. <laughs> I was watching this and I was just like, oh, it's a shame she's in this. She should just be M in the next Bond mm-hmm. movie. Because she's one of those people who can, she's so talented boring exposition sounds good. Yeah. And that is such an invaluable skill in a movie. Mm. To have some, because a lot of movies, at some point, 
you just need to outline the plot. It's not yeah. it's not a clever scene. Well, you'll know you just need you just need it out those, there. Uh, in those Mission Impossible movies, yeah. there's always like some notable actor giving the exposition. Yeah. Uh, sometimes uh, it's and, Anthony Hopkins. And it was Anthony Hopkins in two. It was Lawrence uh, Fishburne in three. Lawrence Fishburne in three. Yeah. Uh, very briefly in four, it was Tom Wilkinson. Although yes. he died pretty quickly in that movie. Uh, then I think it, I can't remember who was, then it was five and six was Angela Bassett. Five was Alec Baldwin. Oh yeah, and then, and then six was uh, Angela Bassett. Yeah, yeah, and then they brought uh, and then they brought back uh, Henry um, Tierney back. Yeah, um, for, and, and I love for Henry seven. He's in one and seven. He's such a fun actor. I'm glad he was in this and Scream this year because I remember mm-hmm. I always remember thinking I loved him so much in Mission Impossible. Why isn't he in more things? Yeah, uh, they wanted to bring him back uh, for the fifth one. He was going to oh. be the Alec Baldwin role. Oh, but I like, didn't hear that. Some sort of scheduling thing, like he couldn't do it, so hmm. they got Alec Baldwin instead. Bummer. Anyway, uh, the main plot is uh, oh, Jesus fucking Christ. Okay. So, here's here's what I'll say. Let let me guess. There's uh, uh, some sort of crisis Uh that the main spies can't take care of, and Heart of Stone has to go rogue and take care of it herself. A little. While staying ahead of uh, somebody on her side who's on her tail, Mm -hmm. while she uh, defies the odds, stays one step ahead, and globetrots. To take care of various things around the world. Close. Right. Close. Um, she's trying to keep her cover in this, like, MI6 unit that she's in. And I gotta say, I actually think this was kind of cute because they actually tried really hard to make this MI6 unit with Jamie Dornan and um, uh, Jing Lucy and... I forget who the other guy was. Um, they try to make it seem like they're, like, a family like they work together so much they've got this really they've got like shorthand and jokes that they do and it's all about how Gal Gadot like would like to feel like she's part of this group she is very lonely and she can never really get to know them because she's always on the outside uh, and I think that that helps a little mm-hmm. bit, but then the movie kind of moves away from that, and it becomes more about oh, there's always one bad guy in the organization, and this bad guy is trying to steal the heart so he can do bad guy things, and then the movie becomes pretty much after that very formulaic and rote. Um, this movie was directed by Tom Harper. Tom Harper uh, did a movie that is frankly not very well written, but very very nicely directed a few years ago called The Aeronauts, mm-hmm. uh, which starred uh, Eddie Redmayne and Felicity Jones uh, as uh, people who are trying to pilot a hot air balloon higher than anyone else ever gone before. Yeah. And there's a crisis, and will they make it out alive? Perfect. And Played like a disaster movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And honestly, like the, the problem is there's the, the entire like disaster event takes place over such a short amount of time that the movie keep, needs to keep cutting away to it in flashbacks, and the flashbacks are... We don't... We need, like... A, this should have been a 60-minute movie in the 30s. Like, okay. if, the, if, this, if this was allowed to be a 61-minute movie uh-huh. directed by James Whale in 1936, it would have been awesome. But because it's supposed to be feature-length, it feels really, really padded. But all of the stuff... You mean this isn't, like... Two hours and forty minutes, or something. No, it, it's it's a hundred, but it oh. doesn't it doesn't need to be a hundred. All right, like to my point, it still feels padded, even though hundred is a perfectly <laughs> reasonable number. The just the material just isn't there. But all of the stuff in the hot air balloon is beautifully photographed. You get the real sense of height and the vertigo of it. You get the real danger when like they get so high it's, they start freezing to death, like that kind of thing. Like it, it he knows how to direct 
not good screenplays. And I will give Heart of Stone credit. A lot of the action is actually kind of interesting, or at least kind of looks nice. The oh. scene where uh, Gal Gadot is like parachuting down a mountain, trying to like reach it faster than a car chase can get to. For no particular reason, like there's like a, the parachute has like a light on it. So it kind of glows in the middle of the night and it just looks oh, okay. neat. It, All right. it doesn't really need that, but it's a good touch. It makes something good visual that, flair. Like yeah. something Roger Moore would have done this in 1981, but it looks neater now. Cool. <laughs> so there's stuff like that. There's some visual panache to it. I can appreciate that. Uh, what this movie doesn't have, and this is a good thing, is ceaseless banter. <laughs> and that's what elevates there's no it. Ryan Reynolds there's in this no one. there's no Ryan Reynolds there's no Chris Evans and there's no oh wait Chris Evans was in Ghosted too the, the, those other movies those like this kind of like weird sort of uh, strain of big budget streaming action movies it's like they're deeply ashamed of themselves like we 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 we're, we're pretty convinced that our script sucks and even though we've got some set pieces, we know the plot is really perfunctory. And rather than trying to make the most of that by writing really good characters or sparkling dialogue, we decide to just let people banter ceaselessly, and it's not even funny. Heart of Stone, it, it, it has like some jokes here or there, but it's just because people are like bonding. It It's not a constant litany of people like going off at the mouth yeah. to distract from the movie. The yeah. movie is mediocre, well, but it's yeah. confidently mediocre. It's like, <laughs> I'm pretty sure you're here to see a spy movie. Mm. It's not going to be a particularly original spy movie, but I'm going to film it good and I'm going to treat it kind of seriously. And as a result, you will watch this with the click of a button with very little effort and you will feel like you got enough for your effort. And I feel like when I click on Ghosted and I'm like, this was not worth the like slight tension in my finger that it took to click on play mm. on Apple, whatever Apple streaming service is called. It's Part called of, App Apple TV Plus. Apple TV Plus. See, that's too Apple Plus or Apple TV. Both of them are fine. Um, Heart of Stone, like if you like moved your finger slightly to the right and pressed play... Yeah, you got your money's worth. <laughs> you got your efforts worth. Like it's it's a it's a good example of you, you, how you media. You're, you're making it seem like, uh, yeah, immensely unappealing. I know, but here's my thing. This is the the. If you're gonna be mediocre, hmm. don't apologize for it. Just admit some people are just looking for a generic action movie shot reasonably well. All right, and that's what this is. It is kind of the definition of mediocre, but at least it's not ashamed of it. It's I'm just little, doing uh, the movie, and I kind of appreciated the straightforward approach when we've had so much annoyance lately. I'm a little baffled by this this particular class of movies you're talking yeah. about these these big budget yeah. Netflix movies. Lon, Lon Harris uh, calls them red notices. Red notices, and, and, you know, and some are more than red notices some, than the others. And, but. and some of the movies you know that we call red notices even predate the movie Red Notice, something like yeah. Six Underground, the the Michael Bay movie. Yeah, um, but it, it, that's just the thing that kind or, of oh, codified which, which had uh, Corey Hawkins in it. Six Underground. Oh, that's cool. But like, yeah, the the movie right. it's not necessarily the movie that starts it; it's the movie that codifies it. Yeah, like so, Halloween uh, didn't invent the slasher, but that's when it had all the pieces in it so you mm. can easily copy it 
Now, if, if you are just looking to fill out a, a blank film catalog, yeah. you can just make a bunch of generic action movies. I've seen a bunch of generic action movies right. in my day. A lot of low-budget things. Uh, I always like the really low-budget stuff that just mm. goes for, like, we're going to flip over our car and blow it up today and somebody might die. It's like... yeah. And what's the budget on this thing? I don't know. Does negative Not, count? You yeah. know, it's like yeah, uh, like you're 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 ambitious for your low budget. Yeah, uh, and a lot of those movies are perfectly entertaining. Mm-hmm. You can start spawning your own action stars. Don the Dragon Wilson is in your movie for a scene. You, yeah, you don't need a lot of money and effort. Yeah, to put together a reasonably entertaining action picture. I know. What is the thinking? In getting mm. together as much goddamn money as possible, mm-hmm. like $150, million, $200 million on I, each of these I don't know things. what the budget was on this. I'm actually curious. Hang on, let me find that out. You know, red budget. Red, red budget. <laughs> red budget. Red budget was really, really, uh, really noticed the red budget. Uh, red Notice had a really big budget. Uh, Six Underground had a really big budget. Yeah. And, okay, if you're going to spend all of this money and you're going to try to lure people over to your streaming service... Mm. Wouldn't the idea be to treat it like it's a big Hollywood release? Yeah. That is, you know, spend a lot of money on advertising as well. Uh, try mm-hmm. to make it seem like it's worthy like, of competition well, like it's with an, some of the the big mainstream theatrical Like releases. it's an event. Yeah. You know, like it's, ooh. Heart of Stone is coming. Here's ooh. what's in it. Here's what's exciting about it. We're going to tell you a little bit about the movie. Yeah. I see advertisements for these things. I see billboards around we, town. We're they're, in LA. Not, there's a yeah, lot of billboards and movies around it, here. Yeah. It's not a blank space, but compared to some of the bigger movies, you yeah. don't see them. Yeah. So what's the point of making these gigantic budget movies if the only way to consume them is completely independent, er, um, mm. incidentally? Yeah. It's like... Very passive. Yeah. People don't plan to go to mcdonald's you just sort of get it on the way home right (laughs) it's not a destination restaurant yeah again i think i think a lot of this has to do with uh a streaming service trying to justify its existence Hmm. where it's not just that we have a lot of movies we want to make sure that it feels like you're getting like something special and like i I think what's really happening here yeah and i'm going to be delving into a lot of the business side of things and this ties into what we've been talking about the the recent writer's strike Mm. and Uh, a a lot of these streaming services and a lot of studios have in recent years turned to their value in the stock market Mm. rather than their value as an art production company yeah and as such they need to prove to their shareholders that they're making big movies mm-hmm. and it doesn't really matter mm. what's in them. Yeah. Like, and this is why they're talking about making movies with AI. It doesn't really matter if people are seeing them or what's in them. If it's yeah. only about generating revenue or re- generating stock value. Yeah. There's a few exceptions to that. And I think Amazon and Apple are like the two because both of them, their streaming services, no matter how much money they spend, it's, Incidental because they're actually well, trying to sell you something they're, else. They're part of bigger a bigger company. Amazon yeah. Prime is a delivery company. Apple yeah. sells consumer like, electronics. Amazon can uh, throw away four hundred million dollars mm-hmm. on a Lord of the Rings show that not many people watch mm-hmm. because it looks good to their stockholders mm-hmm. and uh, th- what they're really getting is shipping. people to sign up for yeah. their for their stream for their uh, shipping service. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, there's something that people, when people talk about the industry, there's a lot of money, money quarterbacking uh, from people who've never played football before. <laughs> and 
I see people say like, you know, oh, listen, I know they're making all these bad movies or whatever. They make all these decisions that make no sense or they're disrespecting the art mm. or they're destroying the art. But really, it's their job to make money. No, it is not. <laughs> money is what you make in exchange for doing your job. Yeah. The job of people who run a film studio is to produce films. Those films are, to the people running the studio, a product. Mm. I admit that. But they're supposed to be as good as they can be in order to sell. Mm. I realize that some people just want Kraft Mac and Cheese. Sometimes I just want Kraft Mac and Cheese. But I'm going to buy the brand that tastes better than the others. <laughs> and that's what we're talking about here. So when you're just creating stuff, when you're just creating, and I hate using the word, but this is how they mean it, content. It's this packing movie, chips. Yeah, this movie, These are packing <laughs> chips. This movie feels like... A content. There are good things on Netflix. Netflix has made some of them. I loved Nimona. I know you didn't, but I loved it. Like they they make some good movies, but the stuff around it, Heart of Stone, The Gray Man, Red Notice, they're packing chips, and they're being spray painted gold in an attempt to make it seem like that's the real reason you're here. It's not even bubble wrap. Bubble wrap. At least you get to pop it. <laughs> These are the packing chips, and it's Heart of Stone is less offensive than the others because at least it isn't pretending or apologizing for itself. When you're apologizing for itself, it's just like I can't even enjoy you in a surfacey way because the fact that Ryan Reynolds knows this movie sucks so much that he has to constantly distract you instead of just letting the movie play that is a gesture of lack of confidence in the material. Yeah. Heart of Stone, they had some confidence in the material. Is it worth it? No, honestly, it's 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 not particularly good material. But if you're in the mood for a just okay spy movie, and sometimes you are. Maybe not you, <laughs> but someone near you. Uh. As like just likes the genre enough that they just want to see an okay version that they haven't seen. I respect that. That's how I am with some slasher movies. They don't all have to be winners, but some but I don't always like to see losers. That's Heart of Stone mediocre but better than the other films of its ilk and i think that's noteworthy and i think that's sad <laughs> anyway why don't you tell me about uh, uh another genre film but a uh, one that uh fewer people have heard of than heart of stone tell me about aporia um aporia is a, a low budget science fiction movie starring judy greer that's playing in some indie houses around la i love judy uh, greer judy well uh Judy Greer is, uh, she's movie helper. Uh, if, and, and she's, she, she's a she, spice pack. You just yeah, add to you, the mix. You, you, you mix her in and your movie's a little bit better. Uh, yeah, I've never Judy seen a movie Greer worse because Judy yeah. Greer was in it. Like, that's never happened. Uh, she, she doesn't phone it in. Uh, she has a lot of presence. She has a very nat uh, natural uh, comedic presence, but she can do play like sort of panicked and worn mm. down as well. She's a very versatile actor. Uh, there are many, many people who think she's one of the better actors of her generation who has gone completely under, underappreciated. I wouldn't uh, fight that. Yeah. Honestly, I think she, I mean, she, yeah, she rarely gets a role that actually is worthy of her, but mm. she's great in everything. Yeah. Just period. Yeah. And, yeah. and she's been, done leads and supporting roles. Mm -hmm. Um, for Aporia, uh, it, it's, this is a science fiction movie. That's more about its ideas than about its, uh, sort of special, it's dazzle. Okay. Cause it's set in East LA. 
and golly, it's East LA. Like they're, they're really sort of filming the drabness of that part of Los Angeles. That's the thing. Movies always make Los Angeles look cool. A lot of it is drab. It's really drab. Uh, And uh, Judy Greer plays the mother of uh, an 11-year-old girl, and they're both very much suffering and kind of drifting apart because eight months previous, uh, Dad died. A drunk driver slammed into into Dad, and he, he was... He was killed, and she's trying to put the pieces back together, but everything really stings. The drunk driver uh, got off, like yeah. uh, had to serve a little bit of time, and then it just got out. Slap on the wrist, yeah, nothing, and, yeah. And so she's a little bit outraged about that, but she also understands that wasn't really going to bring her any kind of closure. She just thought yeah. it was something that she could pursue. And a friend comes to her. Mm. Uh, let me look up the name of the friend. Um Rick. Plays, no, uh, it's oh. played by an actor named Payman Mahdi. Okay. And uh, he is uh, a, a refugee who came to the United States to uh, work on uh, theoretical physics. And she says, hey, I have something that might be interesting, because your, your dead husband and I were actually working on this thing. And he takes her into this drab room in a drab mm-hmm. house and shows her this... It, it looks like just a big egg of, like, tangled wires and lights. Yeah. It's just this big, massive machine thing. And he says, this is a time machine. Ah. She's like, that, I don't believe you. That's not a time machine. And it, it doesn't, no, it doesn't send you back in time. What it does is, it essentially, like, sends, uh, he, he describes it as, like, a bullet. It's like, it, it can transport matter back in time to where living things are. And what you can do is kill someone in the past. <clears throat> And, is that all you can do? And, and affect causality. That's all you can do with this machine. You can just kill someone. You can kill someone, but not in the present. You can kill someone in the... Because in the present, you can kill somebody... Okay. With just a fist, if you want to. But, okay. All right. Uh, kill somebody in the past. And so she says, okay, fine. I don't believe you. Kill the drunk driver. Kill the drunk driver that killed my husband. I want him back. And he says, okay. And he hits a button. And nothing happens. And she walks out. And her husband is there. He's back. Okay. It worked. All right. Uh, he's played by uh, his, the character is named Mal. He's played by an actor named uh, Eddie Gatteggi. Uh, oh, uh, Edie, Edie Gaffigy. Oh, it's Gaffigy. Okay. I think it's I. I think not hundred percent. E D I is his first name. I believe uh, it's yeah. I believe it's Edie or Eddie Gaffigy. But good actor. I really like. I really okay. like. Uh, yeah. um, my first exposure to this actor. Uh, you've seen him before. Are... He was in uh, X Men First Class. He was one of uh, like the new mutants who who died. He was in The uh, Harder They Fall. Oh, okay, yeah. Because yeah. well, that thing had a huge cast. It had a huge so, cast, but like, I, I can appreciate getting like okay, so him getting lost in the shuffle, but he's a good actor. Th- this is the first time I've kind of noticed him, because he's mm-hmm. one of the lead actors. But uh, a, a, a curious science fiction thing, thing begins happening, because as now that uh, sort of causality has changed, Judy Greer's memories of the original timeline start to fade a little bit. Okay. Uh, but she's forgotten a lot. She doesn't know what happened in the last eight months. I love that this film points out that she's, like, missing her kids' meetings or, like, she agreed to do something and wasn't there to schedule for it. So she's, like, missing yeah. practical <laughs> shit because the, the timeline has been rewritten. Yeah. After a while, he begins to notice, the resurrected husband, that she's acting a little weird. And now because he worked on this time machine, he begins to suspect something's going on. So Judy Greer has to come clean. Clean. I'm from a timeline where you were killed by a drunk driver. I killed the drunk driver in your back. Mm. But now a guy's dead. I killed him. 
I want to check in on his family. Uh, and it turns out that now they're destitute. Because uh-huh. he died in a drunk driving accident. He's He randomly died. And he had mm-hmm. a young daughter who uh, required a lot of medical attention. And now mom is overworked because she has to pay for all of these <clears throat> medical bills. And they had to move into this really crappy house. It's almost uh, as so, if people yeah. are people too. Yeah, it's almost as if... you. <laughs> There's some consequences Maybe. to your your so, uh, science fiction. It's almost actions. as if killing mm-hmm. is really bad. And uh, well, but then Judy Greer starts to get a little clever. She uh-huh. says, "Well, we already killed the husband, but we can kind of save her financially because of all of this. Like, we actually like trace this really long uh, line back to these." like Bernie Madoff type uh, tycoons who are like involved in these pyramid schemes that were overcharging the hospital. So all this like <clears throat> financial network, if we kill this, like this guy uh-huh. who like two, like a, two years later was going to die in prison anyway, we'll just yeah. kill him it, before that, before he can do his scheme and she'll be saved. Okay. And, and there's a, actually a really great conversation because they're not concerned with the ethics of this. It's like, we have to say, save somebody killing right. one person to save a family is ethically okay. Right, but if and, you kill that person, doesn't that change the, the situation in which that person would be a drunk driver? And now you've just killed a guy who was never a drunk driver? You, is well, the guy still dead from the original timeline? Because well, if you kill a guy before they, that... They don't know that. They, there's there's always going to okay. be some consequence. It's like the lathe of heaven. You know, They, they, yeah. they try to make one wish, and then yeah. that affects something in an unexpected yeah. way. Or if um, you're slightly less classy, the butterfly effect. The movie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, I like the Lathe of Heaven, but see the '70s TV movie, The yeah. Lathe of Heaven. It's really great. Uh, they, they remade it. I didn't see the remake. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, they, they start getting into this web of intrigue where they're starting to figure out whenever they try to kill someone in the past, it affects the present in ways they couldn't uh, really predict. And things about reality begin changing in big, dramatic ways. And, like, people's identities start changing after a while. Mm. But there's no... Here's what I appreciate about uh, aporia. Uh, Aporia, by the way, is a Greek word meaning Mm. a state of constant confusion. Ah. They have a uh, word for everything, don't they? There there are a lot of words. (laughs) Yes. There's at least 12. That's that's true. Uh, And uh, there's no special effect... You watch something like, um, what are some other like high concept time travel movies? You ever see that movie, The Jacket, with Adrian Brody? Oh, they put him in a straight jacket and put him in a drawer, and he can time travel in his mind. It doesn't uh, actually it was, make any goddamn. Sense. It doesn't make any sense. Thematically same, or otherwise, same, it just same with work. the butterfly yeah. effect with Ashton Kutcher. It's like yeah. he can shunt his consciousness into these times in his childhood, but only if he's like staring at a thing and the, the camera goes all jittery and it's all super stylized. But the there's no style to Aporia. It's all just yeah. that bland, drab, East L.A. photography. So they, they hit a button, a little poof of smoke comes out, and that's it. And they have to, and they walk outside and they just see the world as it is, but now they're really confused and they have to go about f- catching up and figuring out these very mundane lives that they've unwitt- unwittingly created and in some cases could kind of drastically ruined. Mm. Judy Greer is is the champion of this movie, mm, I'm not as, as she is in most movies, uh, because she is actually focused on the ethical dilemmas and mm. the sadness that it brings on. 
there's a lot of long penetrating shots of just people contemplating how horrible what they just did was. It's not a slick science fiction movie, it just has a sci-fi premise. It's more about the way these people relate, and it's more about the human side of it. I feel like that's something that's lost in a lot of these science fiction movies, because they want to be really stylish, and they want to be really action-packed. This one's not interested in that, doesn't have the budget for it. Mm. Uh, so they give it all to the characters, and it makes it all the more interesting and all the more effective. Uh, and and ultimately, they have to do something like kind of clever to break the cycle. Uh, it might be a little bit predictable what you think he, uh, they might have to do. This could have been a thirty-minute Twilight Zone episode. They turn yeah. it into a feature length because they're bothering with all of the human stuff. They're bothering to uh, like when they go to see the family of the dead drunk driver. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's actually like a long sequence where the two young daughters begin to bond and they have dinner and there's a lot of long, long conversations and we get a lot more humanity out of the story and we understand the value of life and why these people's lives are important and how profoundly their lives were shaken by a sudden death. Uh, mm. You can intellectualize death. It's easy. We do it all the time because you can only experience it once and you don't get to report back. Hmm. So, uh, it's, uh, it becomes academic after a while, you know, like the trolley problem, the ethical dilemma. And this uh, movie, Aporia, is, brings up that ethical dilemma, they discuss it, but then they actually have to face the human element of it, the actual human part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I went on, uh... I had this really interesting ethical exercise I took part in once because I went on a service project uh, mm. with my church. Yeah, uh, A bunch of youths went to a really impoverished area of, of the country and helped rebuild homes. Yeah. And... Was it like that that uh, uh, Jimmy Carter thing? Or was it a... It, it wasn't... It, it, it's, it was called the Appalachian Service Project. Okay. Uh, and you can donate to that if that sounds interesting to you. Uh but uh, we took the youths, and these are high school kids, uh, through this really interesting ethical dilemma. The church only had so many resources. They could only fix so many homes, and there were a lot of homes that needed help. So uh, we actually went through all of these papers and said, okay, here's like the circumstances all these people are under. Who do you choose to give aid to? Yeah. And they said, well, and That's you know, hard. Th- these are teenagers. It wasn't hard for them. It's like, oh, well, this person needs this and this person needs this. Yeah. Well, we're going to choose these three. And they was all pretty unanimous, like, because they were mm-hmm. using some pretty stringent on paper statistics. Sure. To choose who they wanted to give aid to. And then the second part of the exercise was, okay, call the people you didn't choose mm-hmm. and say no. Mm-hmm. What do you say to them? And it was like kind of this play acting exercise. Yeah, it's and, hard. Uh, so, yeah, that was really... and. Yeah. That got really hard for some of them. Like it was pretty Yeah, that's harrowing. a terrible thing to do. Yeah. I mean it's 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 some someone can't get it. Yeah. Your your resources are finite. But that sucks. It sucks. And because it sucks. you have and human yeah. because you have human decency mm. and you have the capacity for shame mm. and you feel bad. Mm. And yeah, that's where pragmatism and and philanthropy mm. Are at odds, and yeah. that's and again, it's they, they they need to be because there, there's a practical element to it, um, but you also need to never lose your fucking heart because yeah. Ugh, so um, that's hard. So Aporia, but point being, yeah. uh, there's a there's a human face to all of this, and Aporia bothers to have that heart. Uh, it's really good. It's good. Is it's it really satisfying good. in the end? It's satisfying it, in the end. That's yeah. really good. Okay. 
It, it's it's not going to dazzle you, no, but, but it's, it's it's a really good drama. It's a can uh, of worms, though. Sci- sci-fi drama. It's yeah. a can of worms, and sometimes it's like, can we do we are we going to get all the worms back into the can? Are we satisfied with living with all these worms? Like what? What's the worm situation <laughs> in our hearts? Yeah. Uh, so if you have heartworms, you'll love Aporia. Put that on the poster. Um, the next film that I reviewed, uh, or saw, that I will currently review for you now, because that's how it works, uh, is a new rom-com called Red, White, and Royal Blue. Uh, it is based on a best-selling uh, romantic novel. And... Boy, is it a cute high concept. Oh, gosh. It, the concept is it this. so corny. <laughs> it, it, it is. Right. That's not inherently bad in the rom-com genre. Uh, the premise is this. The son of the President of the United States, 22, just got out of, uh, just got out of college, falls in love with the Prince of England. Boom. <laughs> There's your pitch, and they're and and he's into it too. They're in love, but based on the complications of their stations, they have to keep it a secret for a while. Will this be a problem? That's the plot. That's the whole movie right there. You every scene you're thinking of is probably in the film, and and they're two just like blandly handsome blokes. Actually, I'll say this right now. All right. Only one of them is bland. <laughs> the other one has a kind of like a kind of like a hunky version of Al Pacino quality to him. I kind of dig. Right. Um, the, the 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 characters are uh, are played by. Hold on, I don't know their names yet. Uh, I, I don't have them memorized. Rather, uh, Taylor Zachar Perez and Nicholas Galitzine. Uh Taylor Zachar Perez was in uh, two of the Kissing Booth movies. Uh, and uh, I, Nic- I know you've, you've seen all those. Yeah. Actually, I haven't. Oh, okay. for some reason those 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 passed me by. Uh, not not no particular reason. No, certainly no reason. No, certainly nothing against them. Just they didn't come up. Uh, and then Nicholas Gallat scene. Uh, you may recall from the movie High Strung, <laughs> which is one of the great unsung dance movies because that is the movie that understood that what all of those like step up kind of dance movies needed and didn't have a violinist. It is about a violinist who falls in love with a dancer. Will their love work? Yes. <laughs> look up if you want to be happy today. Look up just on YouTube. You don't have to watch the whole, you should watch the whole movie because it's fun. Uh, but if you only want to see one thing from this, it's like four minutes maybe. L- look up on YouTube. Look up the violin battle because it is fucking absurd. Where the hero uh, is at a fancy party and he challenges like the the snooty guy to a violin duel, and so he plays something on the violin, and the other guy plays something a little more complicated on the violin, and then after a while. They get so like into it and so mad at each other that while they're like doing their violin thing with their with their weird violin wands, you know the ones, uh, they a bow. <laughs> I actually knew that I was the trying to weird be funny. weird violin wands. I was trying to be funny and you just didn't wouldn't let me. Uh, they're, they're like they're like they're like doing the stuff on the violin, doing the stuff on the violin, and then they pick up their bows and they whack at each other like their swords for a second, and then they go back to playing violin, and it's 
fucking awesome. And then, like, the waiting staff, there are a whole bunch of dancers, and they decide, like, oh, we gotta give them backup. Quick, let's do a bunch of dance moves with the champagne flutes. And that goes bad. Fucking great. Anyway. Red, white, and royal blue. I was about to say, it, it can't be that good if you're distracted that much by high strung. No, that's how good high strung is. Okay. Don't get it mixed up. Red, white, and royal blue is it's a queer rom-com, mm. uh, which you know, we're getting more of. Good. Uh, but this one is very, and this is a word I don't see used a lot, and I think it should be, Gary Marshallian. Where <laughs> that is resembles the the cinema of Gary Marshall. Yes, which is everything is very bright, everyone in it is very witty. There is plot and there is uh, um, you know um, suspense, uh, but it's pretty structured, very conventional in a lot of ways. I mean, the earlier stuff, Gary Marshall, like towards the end of his career, started making a whole bunch of these the, the ensemble ensemble holiday pieces. Yeah, and... like everyone's got like a short. You know, rom com going on on New Year's Eve, and that and way it's called can, New Year's Eve, and yeah. th- and it's and it's a clever premise because you get to have these giant casts and you get to have all these giant actors, but none of the actors are like actually needed on set for more than like five days. Right. Like it's it's actually kind of brilliant. Like it's the I haven't seen any of them that were particularly good, but as a sort of romantic comedy event, I can't deny that the premise works. Um, but I'm talking about his early stuff. Like the Pretty Woman's or the Runaway Brides. Um, these are movies that are, you know, the plot of Pretty Woman. Other than the high concept and a couple of like good scenes, it's not going to blow your mind. What uh-huh. makes it work is that within that framework, Richard Gere and Julia Roberts and off to the side, always the MVP of these things, Hector Elizondo, <laughs> have a ton of chemistry. They're elevating the material by just being charming, and it doesn't matter what they're doing. You just want to be in the same room with them while they're doing stuff because they're cute and they're sexy and they're having a good time and they have really good chemistry and you want them to get together, and that's the whole movie. And I will say this for Red, White, and Royal Blue, as cheesy as the premise is, those two guys are adorable. <laughs> they are hunks. Whether or not you're into hunks is, is besides the point. They are, But they are. They have great romantic chemistry. They have a lot of sexual chemistry. Oh, yeah. And if you're one of those is, people... Is there a sex scene? Multiple. Oh, good. All like, right. they're not terribly vivid, all of them, but there's a couple that are like, actually, this is kind of a lot. Whether <laughs> queer or straight, doesn't oh. matter. Like, this is more sex than we get in a lot of rom-coms. Okay, okay. And I'm, I'm, I'm on board. If I'm you're on one board. of those people who's like, ah, oh, where's all the sex in movies these days? Well, it's here. Nah. Enjoy. <laughs> Speaking as someone who recently, you know, late in life, uh, mm-hmm. realized and came out as an asexual, uh, when people complain, like, oh, why are all these movies have no sex? People have sex. As, and, and meanwhile, I'm like, well, I actually kind of liked it, actually. <laughs> the, the I didn't really have a problem with that. I, I look at a lot of these movies, and I'm like, oh, there's, there's a lot of asexual cinema out there, and it's doing really, really well. And everyone's like, well, it's bad. And I'm like, is it? Well, for a, for for the, I'll, I'll, I'll just say it, for the sexual majority, I suppose it is. But well, again, the, the, fair enough, if, but if at the same going, time... I, my, I, my issue is if you're going to have asexual representation, say it. I know. 
say so, I have, don't have the characters say out loud, I am an asexual person. I don't disagree with that. Yeah. I don't think it always has to come up in conversation, but I, I don't disagree mm-hmm. with that. Regardless, I think it's been interesting that asexuality has been kind of the standard in Hollywood for a while. Yeah, and it kind of just... No one ever said it, but it kind of has been, and it's been really interesting. Yeah, but but, but it, 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 and even it's romantically, big... it's been very right. chaste. Um, this one, horny, good, very horny, and I'm into it. Like I'm, I'm like, again, not my thing, but like I, it's, I buy them as a couple. I buy that they're into each other as a couple. You can't say that for every rom com. It works. the The comedy works better than I thought it would. There's some funny jokes couple of silly set pieces. There's a bit where a giant cake falls on them. And I'm like, you know what? If Cary Grant did this with Rosalind Russell in 1939, we would say it was charming. Cary Grant would do it with Jimmy Stewart. Well, okay. Yeah, this... (laughs) Touche. Touche. I would love to say that movie, by the way. But touche. Oh, (laughs) Yes. 1,200 fuck yeses. Yeah. But, like, you know, there's so many bits that we sort of roll our eyes at. And then, like, you watch Bringing a Baby, and it ends with them, like, with a brontosaurus collapsing on them. It's like, it's slapstick. There's bits of it. It's fun. Um, Some good supporting roles in it. Uh, Uma Thurman plays the president. Which is cute. Right. Uh, uh, Clifton Collins Jr., who I feel is one of the most underrated actors of his generation, plays uh, the first gentleman. Uh, he's really he's really fun. Uh, Sarah Shahi is really really funny in this movie. There's some couple. There's a there's a cameo towards the end. I won't tell you who plays the king, but when he shows up, you're like, oh, that's a good get. <laughs> like, well, for for a guy who's going to have one scene after being built up on camera the whole movie, you got the right guy. It really works. Um, so yeah, I think the only other thing that's like really interesting about the movie, and I'm, I'm not sure this is a good thing, is that it, there's this weird romantic comedy obsession uh, we have, and I think it's I I don't think it's exclusively American, but we do have it in America uh, with wanting to marry a member of the British royal family. We have a uh, weird thing about it. It's very intense. We we spent all these centuries trying to I get mean, away so, from the monarchy, and then we just want to marry back into it. Uh, I, I have never quite understood a lot of Americans' obsession with the with British royalty. Uh, it's like we, we we fought a war, so we don't have to pay attention to them anymore. Mm-hmm. They, they wrote a couple history books about it. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a big event. Yeah, and uh, and, and, and frankly, a lot of people even in England. Mm-hmm. Some people are really in love with the royals. It's part of their tradition. They're they're into it. A lot of people in England also go, why do we have this now? Yeah. <laughs> they're not running the country anymore. They just own a lot of the land. Why are mm-hmm. we... Why, it, why? And even the movie asks that question a few times, which I appreciate. Like what's it's what's like, the function of the monarchy? What is the function the of the monarchy? And, and I know there's uh, an answer to that, but the, the whether it's a good answer is up for some debate. Then. Yeah. So I appreciate that the movie addresses that, but when you add in this whole Camelot thing with like now like the son of the president is treated like the American prince, mm-hmm. it's sort of like and we have a weird tradition of that too. There's there's quite a few like family members who have all been president. For example, no. John Adams, John Quincy Adams, William Henry Harrison was Benjamin Harrison's grandfather. Teddy Roosevelt was Franklin Delano Roosevelt's cousin. We had two George Bushes. We almost had two Kennedys. Like we're weird about dynasties here. We like we oppose it, but for some reason we we're into it. Like well, some people are like, ah, oh, when Trump's kids are president, I'm like multiple. My God, no. Like, remember oof. when they thought Jeb was going to be president? Yeah. Jeb Bush. Please clap. Uh, <laughs> God. 
Anyway, it's based to our weird obsession with like celebrity and politics, which is just politics. Kind of odd. And yeah, you, you start looking yeah. up um, financial law, like law in mm. the United States, and how you know intergenerational wealth is mm. is very uh, stringently protected in this country. Yeah. Uh, that you'll, that's why. Yeah. Hmm. So like, there's this we, we have a weird obsession with it, and like, th- but here's the thing: I kind of understand a movie about like falling in love with the Prince of England and marrying the Prince of England because he's charming and he's got a lot of money and there's all of this history with it. I can kind of see that. Oh. I can see the princess diaries where like, oh, I'll, I didn't know I was a princess and I get to go and have this fabulous makeover and live in a castle and everyone loves me. I can understand that fantasy. Hmm. What's kind of weird about this is that there's no character in this movie that's you in the audience. They're, it's they're, you. There's a, they're both removed from you. They're pre- both... Prison's child and a king's child. This is yeah. like, ah, uh, there's this like person I, I put on a pedestal and I think they're really incredible and oh, I wish they'd like me. But I also want them to date this other person I put on a pedestal. I'd be super happy and wealthy and powerful. And I'm not in the movie. <laughs> and it's a little weird. Well, it doesn't need a minute. You can project yourself and do whatever you want. You can a little bit. I just found it. I found it a little alienating after a while. Like mm. neither of them. They talk about like how this guy, like yeah, the president's son, you know, he lived a relatively normal life before his mom became a major politician. And I'm like, yeah, okay, fine. But as we know him in the movie, he's been the president's son for a while, mm-hmm. and his life is not like anyone else's and it's it's a little alienating after a while and i started wondering like i'm into it because of the characters but the sense of projection we sometimes get in these kind of like wish fulfillment romantic fantasy movies is weirdly absent Mm. uh so that was just kind of interesting i don't even know if it's bad it's just kind of interesting and i got distracted and started thinking about it um but anyway it's cute it's it's doesn't like do anything terribly new to the medium, but it knows how to do this movie pretty good. Okay. And I think that a huge part of that is just get the right cast, and they got the right cast. So I gotta give them credit. You know, look, I'm, I'm thinking about everything we've reviewed this week, and... Uh, a lot of mediocrity. It, well, I was gonna say, it must be mid-August. Yeah. It, it, it feels yeah. a lot like we're in mid-August Very here. mid-August, yeah. Because uh, the next... I'm gonna be really... This is a long episode, um, and I'm gonna be... And it's getting kind of late. So I'm gonna yeah. be real quick about okay. the communion girl because there's nothing to talk about. Oh uh, no. Uh, th- this is uh, one of the latest releases on shutter and uh, shutter has been pretty reliable. We mm-hmm. talk all the time about how great shutter is with their uh, horror curation. When they have an original film, it's usually at least worth checking out. There's going to be something mm. kind of striking about it, even if it's not very good. They've had some good ones this unique. year. Um, um, I really liked um, the influencer. I thought that was. Yeah, just I, didn't, de- I didn't see it. I thought that was deliciously yeah. Hitchcockian. If you haven't seen it yet, please do. I loved it. Uh, so There's something else recently that I saw. Uh, yeah, because they, they, they distributed Skin of Rank, uh, mm-hmm. which was you know, yeah. good for them. That's one of the one, best of the year, easily. Um, yeah. Uh, what, what did they do just recently that I saw? Oh, it was Brooklyn Forty Five, the Larry Fassenden movie. Oh yeah, you really um, liked that, that yeah, one. That, yeah. one, that one was a really yeah. good one. I think that one came out like the week after Influencer. Um, yeah, yeah, see Brooklyn Forty Five. It was good streak really there good. for a bit. So yeah, if there's like okay, here's a Spanish film they've imported. There's going to be something kind of interesting about it. Well, okay, a Spanish filmmaker, mm-hmm. director is named uh, uh, Victor Garcia. Mm-hmm. Well, he sure likes those Conjuring movies, <laughs> so he just sort of did that. Mm-hmm. 
there's these two teenage girls. They're played by Carla Campara and Ina Quinones, and they live kind of average, not particularly scintillating home lives, and they go to a pretty boring high school, and they like to sneak out, and they're party girls. They want to go out and party, and... After a party, they get into a car with some shady drug guys, and mm. they decide to scare the girls by saying, yeah, we're going to drive out into the woods. <laughs> they don't actually have plans to do violence, but mm. uh, it kind of feels like it for a second. It's kind of yeah. a little bit of sinister. Things are getting kind of scary. Very left-handed. And uh, and while, while they're... Uh, that's what sinister means. Um, while they're driving out, they see something in the road. It's a ghostly figure, and it, could it be related to the local legend of a little girl who was taking her first communion and drowned that same day, and now they see her ghost on the road occasionally? Spoiler alert! Mm. No. This, sadly, it is. No. It's, it's, yeah. no, It'd be fun if there was a huge twist. And it was there, like, there's, no, there's it's no all. twist. They go, they get out, and they find a little doll out there that's like, oh, that's, this might have been the girl's doll, and then they pick up that doll. Wouldn't you know? They start seeing weird, haunty shit. Uh, I would have loved it if the movie would have been called Haunty Shit. Weird, haunty shit. Yeah, uh, just with yeah, a Y. Haunty. There's a lot, a lot of banging. They do the mirrored medicine chest shtick. Um, although the, mm. the twist this time, you know, you've seen that in hundreds of horror movies where they close the mirrored medicine chest and there's somebody behind them that wasn't there before. The director of this movie, Victor Garcia, literally directed Mirrors 2. <laughs> Which admittedly uh, was better, I think a little better than Mirrors 1, but anyway. Uh, but, Although the, uh, neither of them were as good as a South the, Korean movie they're based on Into the Mirror, but anyway. She closes the mirror and rather than mm. there being like a ghost or you know the ghost standing behind her, yes. she closes it, there's nothing behind her, and then over to her right, a big noise comes from the bathtub. So it's okay. vague mystery. Right. That's about as clever as you can help from the communion girl. Oh, and man. there's all of the perfunctory scenes where they go and investigate and I found this legend and they talk to the local priests and it is all part of this big scandal. Uh, and if you've seen a lot of those J-Har remakes that were really mm. in vogue in the early 2000s, it takes a lot of, uh, a lot of ideas from that, including... Uh, a climax that takes place at the bottom of a well, uh, which uh, was something that happened in uh, The Ring the and Ring. the Japanese yeah. movies that it's based on. Uh, the ghost looks... I mean, I, I'm, I like that it, the ghost is a practical effect. They mm-hmm. didn't do sort of like well, nice. the, the CGI thing that they do with a lot of those Conjuring movies. Yeah. But it, it there is not an original thought in this movie. There's nothing mm-hmm. striking about it. It's slickly made. It has good production value. It's competently edited. I like the lead actresses, but it's all in service of nothing. Yeah, like, th- there's no ideas here. There's it's not even an interesting story. I I, I try to remember when I'm watching something that's formulaic. Mm. That not everybody is going to be sick of the formula yet, mm. but that's not a free pass no, to just be if, for me. Like you, you still want to like do it well. Yeah. You, you, you know? you've said that, you know, and any film's going to be somebody's first time encountering that. So maybe some, yeah. some audience members are seeing the communion girl and getting these cliches for the first time. Yeah. Uh, okay. Make it work. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm a film critic. I would like you to bring something new to the table. I'd like a striking new idea, but if you're not going to do that, mm-hmm. 
make it a scary movie. Yeah. Uh, do something unique with the fright. Mm-hmm. Uh, or just do it really well. startle me. Yeah, or, like you know, like or Cobweb, for example. Like, we mm. talked about how the lo- a lot of the pieces of that movie mm. were similar to other things, but they're well-constructed. Like, they're, they're, yeah, they're, and, they're effective. And and they pre- even though the, that's kind of a predictable movie, mm-hmm. it's presented in a surprising way. Yeah, like, the uh, cinematography feel, is really creepy. kind of like it's a surprise. The cast is very, very good and make it a little, mm. make it a little different than you expect. Mm. It's really good, but There's, familiar maybe, but really good. Uh, there's nothing different about yeah. the communion girl. Um, it's it's just another. It's it's one of those ones you might stumble in on Tubi, um, which is a big disappointment when I'm talking about Shutter because Shutter usually yeah. and and I've seen a lot of bad movies on Shutter. Mm-hmm. And I want to like make it I clear said, they they try to at least put films on their service. Mm-hmm. It's very carefully curated. Yeah, that have like a, a new voice or something interesting to say, and this has nothing. And I'll make it clear here that there's a lot of... Tubi has a lot of movies on it and a lot of really good movies. What they don't have are very good original movies. Mm. The original movies that they have are mostly schlock that they've picked up. The best original movie I have ever seen on Tubi. Uh-huh. Terror Train 2. Uh, and I didn't see Terror Train 1, but I watched Terror Train 2 with you. Yeah, and it's like, it's it's an okay slasher. That's it. <laughs> like it's it's better than you would think no, based like the, on the, the title. Like, it does you know? a little bit like more interesting stuff with the characters. That, it's got a um, theme, yeah. you know, that it actually explores. I, like it's, I, it's competent. You know, I still maintain that uh, Terror Train Two might have been the, one of the first movies I've seen that has a non-binary character who's one of the main cast mm-hmm. whose uh, gender is completely incidental. Yeah. There's just a non-binary it's character. It's not a plot they, point. They refer it's, to yeah. them as they. Uh, Nobody questions it. Nobody, nobody makes t- a yeah, thing t- out of it. about it. They're, they're kind of a even... badass, but it's not like over the top. They're just, you know, they're like security they're, person. They, they have they, a security yeah. guy, guard yeah. and, and they had like like kung fu skills. And yeah, that, but they don't really scene. use, but yeah, like, like, yeah. it's But regardless, nice, right? Isn't that nice? They just kind of just exist. But I mean, it's it's kind of odd that it's dropped into the straight to Tubi movie in the middle of a, this entertainment desert that is mm-hmm. Tubi. Yeah. Anyway, um, um, all right. Bummer about Communion Girl. Sorry to hear. Yeah. That. So I I, I I I always am very optimistic about Shutter, and they they kind of let me down this time. Well, you know, they can't all be winners. What are you going to do? Um, it's you know what. They could even, be even if we had more ambitious artists. Even on sh- listen. Mm-hmm. You know, like in Nightmare on Elm Street, they say every town has an Elm Street. So then Freddy's six, but yeah. But they say it in the franchise. My point is this. <laughs> every town has an Elm Street. Every streaming service has an August. Yeah, I guess, I guess so. Even, even Shudder has an August. So let's... Even Shudder has an August. <laughs> Watch August film releases. Oh, no! Oh, sh- that's the title no. of the movie. It's called oh, August my... film releases. Oh, my God. It's, it's about theater employees. And the theater is empty. Because nobody wants to see this crap. <laughs> Except for this one customer. Is he there? Is he not there? Ooh, creepy. And, um, and he's a dead customer. I think we're done here. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. It is time <laughs> to review some movies in the critically acclaimed way. And how we do that is by not acclaiming them very highly. Uh, we review movies on a scale of C- to C+. Uh, where C- is the lowest grade a movie can get. That's a movie that we consider below average Uh Maybe it's just not particularly good. Maybe it genuinely sucks. Mm. Either way, not not a real recommendation. Uh, a C, a C is just average. 
mediocrity from beginning to end. Maybe some good and bad elements sort of balance each other out. Maybe it's more for one audience than another, but regardless, just middle of the road. And then C plus is above average. Those are movies we genuinely recommend. Either we think they're wonderful or just entertaining. We just think they're worth checking out. I have a suspicion of how this is going to go, but Whitney, the communion girl, communion girl is a C minus. Ah. Yeah. Just, just like I said, uh, well put together, mm-hmm. you can be s- tricked into thinking this is a real movie. It does because mm-hmm. it doesn't look cheap. It actually looks really kind of sophisticated and as well constructed, but mm-hmm. not interesting. Yeah, not really that scary either. Bummer. Uh, Red, white, and royal blue. This is one of those genres that I think it's very easy to acknowledge when it's doing something well and yet still look down your nose at it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to acknowledge that in a very Gary Marshallian way, uh, this is actually quite good. It's just quite good at doing something a little perfunctory. So I'm going to give it a C plus. Okay. Well, the qualification that if it wasn't for the main cast being sparkling, it would not be that. But by God, they cast it well. And they had really good chemistry and they're funny. So kudos to them for understanding that you just let the story play and let the cast do the work. Uh Whitney, uh, mm. tell me, uh, what was it? Uh, Aporia? Aporia. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's a C plus. I really Yay. liked Aporia. Um, I, I like uh, science fiction movies that deal with the human face of things and mm-hmm. the ethics of their science fiction premise. And this does it. Mm. Does it. it has the discussions. It has the sadness. And it has people who actually aren't geniuses making kind of dumb decisions. And I, that's something I think humans can relate to. Mm. Yeah, I really like Aporia. All right. Uh, Heart of Stone. Uh there is a picture of the, like the, you know, like the thumbnail they have on Netflix. Mm. Oh, there's a picture of that next to the word mediocre in the dictionary now. <laughs> uh, and mediocre, it's important to remember. A lot of people think of it as like a horrible negative, like, oh, it's bad. Like, no, it's mediocre. It's right in the middle. This is just what a spy movie looks like. Uh. And so I'm giving it a C. It is a clean, unremarkable C. If you're in the mood to see mm. like an okay spy movie, you might enjoy mm. it. If you're not, you you might not. No. Uh, I what I respect more than anything else is that they're not apologetic about what they are. This is they have way too much money, but other than that, this is a middle of the road spy film, and they made a middle of the road spy film, and they never apologize for it. Um, and then lastly, the last voyage of the Demeter. Um, Be I, I, I guess I guess it's a C minus just because it, it it could have been so much better. Yeah. Uh, it, it feels like a little bit overblown. It's really yeah. weirdly paced. It's not terribly mm. interesting. I just like the premise a lot. Yeah. Premise is good. Premise like, is great. It's a great I, premise. And I like this. I would agree with this based on the premise. And, and I think the screenplay is not terrible. Yeah. I think it's just the filmmaking is what's getting in its way. It's, yeah. it's not terribly well photographed. It's not terribly well edited. Um, the acting is fine. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just a... I'm going to put it all on Andre Overdahl because I think mm-hmm. he's the one who's, who's taking a lot of the sort of exciting, more salacious B-movie elements of this movie, mm-hmm. something that could have made it like low-budget and exciting, and tried to make it too slick for its own good. I, which is weird because Andre Overdahl is actually often really good at that. Mm-hmm. I know you didn't see the autopsy of Jane Doe, but that's someone who's making a lot out of a yeah. little, and it really works. Um, I'm with you. I was I was torn on this. I was like, is it, a lot of it's just competent. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't really work. It's I've seen some people online get kind of hyperbolic about how bad they thought this movie is. And maybe oh, that's your real opinion. Maybe it's yeah. not. But <sighs> I've seen way too many really shitty movies yeah. to call this like one of the worst movies of the year or anything like that. It's, it's not. 
it's competent but so uninteresting that it falls underneath mediocre and becomes kind of bad. There are people who this might very specifically be their jam, and you might like this a lot more than I do, and I respect that. But for me, I was like, there's so many ways this movie could have been exactly the movie I wanted to see, in different ways. Mm. And instead, they kind of just went for the most perfunctory version they could find. Uh, And that's very frustrating. Is it functional? Yes. Is that what we were asking for? No. Because unlike something like Heart of Stone, where... You know, it's, it's just sort of generic, over-the-top action. Uh, horror has subjectivity to it. We're trying to, like, put us into the shoes of these characters so that we can experience either, like, directly because it mirrors our fears or just sort of empathetically uh, their fears. We are trying to feel something. Mm. And I felt nothing watching it. And I think it's not great for a horror movie. So I'm going to give it a... a, It's a high C- minus because there's a lot of competence to it. But it doesn't work. And I rambled. Um, That is it for this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll be back next week with a review of new releases like Blue Beetle. Which is a thing that they made. Well, one of the last superhero movies in a particular continuity, which is wrapping up. Or possibly the first in a new continuity. I'm really hazy about about, that. I'm really hazy about that. It's deeply confusing to me. Look, until they make, like, at least one other movie, Mm -hmm. I'm convinced they're not going to happen, but until they do... Tell me about it. uh, Yeah, we'll see how it goes. Anyway, but it's its own... It's it's, it's a whole thing. Uh, We'll review it. It'll be a movie. Uh, Maybe it'll be good, maybe it won't. And, um, yeah. So thank you for listening. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. A huge thank you to all of our patrons uh, who get to listen to all of our new episodes ad-free. They get to listen to episodes of our podcast, Thank Godzilla, It's Friday, which airs on Fridays, one week early. Uh, They also get a lot of exclusive shows. We did a commentary track for The Exorcist recently that is only available for patrons uh, at a certain tier. We have a Star Trek podcast, which we review... um, that's where we review every single episode of Star Trek in order. We're currently hard at work researching uh, our next episode of Only the Best, where we review every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of stuff over there, and we just hope you're enjoying it. And thank you once again to everyone who has signed up. If you can afford to, it's patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, you can also, if you want to talk about anything we discussed in this episode, our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Yeah, send us a physical letter to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. We're on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim, and all the other social medias. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, I'm on Blue Sky, mostly. Mostly he's on Blue Sky. I, I putter around on a few, but yeah. And uh, that's it. That's that's the episode. It's, it's late and we're tired. So thank you for being wonderful. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what?